Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Living free. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Hi, I'm Bill and I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. I'd like to pay my respects to the elders past and present and to acknowledge that this, is, this land was stolen and that sovereignty was never ceded. Each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the many programs that assist in recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Uh, this week I'm joined in the studio by Rachel, uh, who's recovering from alcoholism with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. So welcome, Rachel. Thank you. It's uh, great to be here, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Rachel, our usual format is to talk about growing up and the things that influenced you uh, that why you took the path you took, I guess. So do you want to talk about early life for you and um, your, your family and sort of growing up? Mm-hmm. Sure, I can do that. So um, I guess my early life, um, we moved around a lot. Uh, my family were uh, musicians, so we were never in one place for very long. Um, unfortunately, there was... Um, my, my story does involve uh, family violence. Um, my father was a abusive alcoholic and um, there was always alcohol around. Um, we had uh, a lot of rehearsals at the house and um, there were, you know, which was great. I actually really loved that. Love listening to the music from outside and, you know, wishing I could sort of, you know, be in there, but I just listen outside the door and um, after the rehearsal was finished, um, I'd go in and sniff all the glasses of beer and wine that were left on the tables. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was a it was a fairly unstable kind of upbringing, I guess. Um, and I, I never really, you know, you never really know that your upbringing is, is unstable until you get out there and you go, wow, nobody else's, like, upbringing was like this. <laughs> Um, so yeah, there was, um, as I sort of alluded to, um, yeah, my, my father was a violent alcoholic, um, violent to my mother and my brother. Um, somehow I, I managed to remain unscathed, um, although I was witness to it and it, um, I guess, you know, I, I do carry some survivor's guilt with me on that, uh, which I will hope to work through when I uh, get through the steps with my sponsor. Um, it also adultified me as a child um, because I wanted to protect my mother and my brother and for many, many years I felt like I was responsible for them and for their well-being and I, you know, I, I'm definite that, that the roles were reversed for a very long time and um Boundaries are something that I've had to learn in the last few years of my recovery because who knew, but I never had any. 
you know, it's it's actually good to have boundaries. It's, you know, um, I'm 50 years old and I'm just starting to learn about boundaries. But hey, you know what, better late than never is what I say. Yeah. Mm. Um, so did your family have a history of drinking? Not so much my mother. Um, I mean, look, I grew up in a, I guess, a traditionally Australian household, um, you know, um, where alcohol flowed freely. There was always barbecues, you know, alcohol was was normalised. I was never made to feel like it was bad to drink. Um, If anything, I couldn't wait to drink because that's what everybody else did. And I thought that that's what you did to remain sociable and be accepted, you know, as as a young kid, like a really young kid, mm. um, because we lived in a big house. There was like our whole family there, my uncles, their girlfriends, um, my grandmother. So it was a very lively household. We had, you know, we even had uh, the odd boarder that would live in a caravan in the backyard, plenty of those. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was a very social environment and... You know, um, I would regularly go through my uncle's caravans and there'd be, you know, empty VB cans and, you know, I'd search through their money boxes for change for the pinball (laughs) machines, but that's not really relevant. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what about your life at school? Hmm, which one? (laughs) (laughs) Give us a a sample. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Um, I went to um, seven or eight schools. Um, because we moved around so much for my parents' work with the band, um, which was difficult because um, I was a really shy child. Um, from, I guess, the family environment that I grew up in, um, as we were chatting about earlier, like I was a bit of a perfectionist. Or I I kind of have to wonder if the violence and the, the out-of-controlledness that was going on in my family was um, at all contributive to my need for perfection as a child. Um, you know, I don't know if it's got anything to do with it at all, but um, I taught myself to read at the age of four. I learned to play piano by ear at the age of four as well. And um, they put me up in school. Um, so I was already like a lot younger than my peers. Um, and socially I was probably really behind, um, you know, considering I was in with, you know, five and six year olds, but, um, I liked school. I liked the stability of it. And I definitely liked going to school to get away from being at home. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I guess I really loved primary school and, um, I loved the, the feeling of security that it gave me. Um, it was a safe environment for me. Mm. Um, but when we started moving around, like initially I liked the moving around, but as it went on and on and on, um, I liked it less and less. Um, when we moved to Queensland, I got bullied, got a black eye, had no friends, kids would tease me. Um, it was miserable. (laughs) It's miserable. So, um, yeah, it was difficult moving around so much and having to, you know, already being a really shy, um, withdrawn kind of kid um, to having to be pushed around in different schools and being the new kid all the time. Yeah. 
Todd. sucks. Yeah. You know, when you're the one standing up the front. Of the, hi, everybody. We've got a new kid today. Her name is Rachel. Everybody say hi. Oh, my God. Nobody wants that eight times. No. Nobody. So, yeah, by the time I was 14 and I was I was starting to rebel. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> As you would. I, I'd had jack of it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, did... It's difficult making friends and keeping friends even if you don't move school. So did you find it particularly difficult to make friends? Uh, yeah, yeah, I did. I mean, look, like I said, at some schools I made no friends at all. Um, and it was really, really miserable. And, um, yeah, those are, those are times that I definitely don't reflect upon at all. Um, it, look, then there were schools that I made amazing friends at, like um, – we went to Queensland twice. The first time was terrible. The second time we went up was in, I think it was like 1984 or 85. And I mean, wow, what, you know, what an incredible time that was just, you know, just being able to say I was a teenager in, you know, the mid eighties when such good music. And um, it was just a, you know, a very free way of living, I guess, back then. Um, and I made some friends that I'm still in touch with today. I used to, uh, when I moved back to Melbourne, um, I would write them letters. We used to stay in touch by mail and, um, yeah, I'm in touch with like three out of four of the good friends that I had in Queensland. Um, none from Alice Springs, unfortunately, <laughs> wasn't there long enough. Um, but yeah, I'm, look, I don't have... A lot of friends, but the friends that I do have, I hold really close to my heart. They're really, you mm. know, they're special. Mm. So why did you move around so much? Um, my, my parents were musicians and um, they would go where the work was. Right. So, you know, if they got a residency at a hotel for three months, well, that's where we, we, we were going. And if it looked like it was going to continue, um, then they would send for me and my brother and we'd go up there and enroll in the school and hope to God that they kept the work um, and never kind of worked out (laughs) for that long. (laughs) You know, the most it would be a year. Um, But after that year, yeah, I never got to see a second year in a school. Um, When we were interstate, we went to, yeah, South Australia, went to Adelaide, um, and I was very, very upset when I had to leave Adelaide. That was mm. the last straw for me because I was making friends and I joined in a, you know, we created a little band, a school band, and, um, yeah, I was really angry that we had to leave. Mm. So did things change when you went to secondary school? Um, no, well, that was secondary school when I was yeah. in Adelaide um, and in Queensland, so um, not really. Uh, when we came back to Melbourne for the final time and I went to another school here, I really rebelled. Um, I remember cutting my hair in the toilets during a class that I was getting bored in and I would go home and like pierce holes in my ear and yeah, you know, stuff that 14 year olds do. Mm. (laughs) If my daughter's listening, don't you dare. (laughs) (laughs) So when were you exposed to your first drink? Okay. So 
after some deliberation, I realised, actually talking to you this afternoon, (laughs) (laughs) um, that I don't think I was necessarily looking for alcohol when I found it because I used to like to go into my grandmother's biscuit cupboard. Um, She used to hide her chocolate biscuits in the cupboard in the kitchen under the TV and um, one day I thought I would open her brand new packet of Hokey Pokies and I would try one and they were so good. (laughs) They were just better than good. They were too good. I had to eat them all. So this became a bit of a ritual. I would go and, well, actually, let me finish because I'd eat, I actually ate the whole packet of Hokey Pokies and then my grandmother came and she's looking for her biscuits and she's like, I'm sure I just bought a brand new packet of Hokey Pokies and I've just like, you know, discreetly left the room. Are you sure you brought them? Oh, who knows? So um, anyway, the next time she bought two packets and I thought, oh, great, I'll eat one and she can have the other. So uh, she won't notice. She'll think she's gone mad. She'll think that she just bought one and I'll tell her that she bought one. <laughs> so, of course, you know, off into the bathroom I go, stuff down the hokey pokies. She's none the wiser. So um, this went on. And anyway, one morning before school, uh, I don't think there were any hokey pokies. She probably got Jack of buying them and <laughs> not being able to eat them. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. And... Uh, Anyway, I saw a pretty shabby-looking bottle of, I think it was like a yellow label cooking sherry. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, really top shelf. Um, Yeah, in the cupboard, you know, room temperature. Mm. And and, uh, I don't know what grabbed hold of me, but I just took it and I necked it. And the feeling that that gave me, the was like, I've heard it described as like a warm hug. Um, the warmth that spread across my chest um, and then the relaxation that followed was something I'd never experienced if in my life. And so I chugged a little bit more and then I walked up to get onto the school bus and I was just flying. And I thought, oh, this is great. I want to do this all the time. You know, all of a sudden my insecurities were gone. I had a, I had a stutter as well. Um, my, when I was about 14 around that time. So, um, my stutter was pretty much gone because I was more relaxed and I wasn't so anxious and I honestly didn't give a crap. Um, I didn't care about the kids in the bus looking at me and I thought alcohol was fab. Hmm. So, do you want to just talk a bit about anxiety? You said it sort of solved your anxiety problems, but what sort of anxiety did you have? What anxiety (laughs) didn't I have? (laughs) My God. Well, you know, being the umpteenth school that I'd been um, lumped into, um, I felt like the kids were always looking at me, and sometimes they were, and I would just like literally look over my shoulder and go turn around you know like what's your problem um and I was nervous to put up my hand to speak in class Mm. um I just had an over I mean look now I I guess I I never 
you know, we didn't really talk about stuff like this back then. But I mean, I think I had high functioning anxiety um, because, you know, I don't think that that's normal. I think kids normally don't have that high anxiety just to answer a teacher's question in class. But I mean, having said that, I mean, I think I experienced that in primary school as well. I remember just being petrified of having to speak. Being quiet was better for me because, like, let's face it, you know, my my dad always said children were to be seen and not heard. So that's kind of where I felt safe, by not having a voice. So, and when I tried to speak, I started anyway. So I might as well be quiet altogether. So, um, yeah, that's what I guess I'm referring to when I talk about the anxiety because it was just an anxiety of everything you know i had acne as well it's a great combination for (laughs) zero confidence (laughs) you also mentioned that you um were in a band when you were in adelaide so as a student so do you want to talk a bit about that and did that alleviate some of your anxiety oh it was great yeah it was great um, I played the piano and uh, we had a drummer and a guitarist and um, yeah we just I think we learnt one song I think it was like the Blues Brothers um, I got you 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 in the mind yeah nobody sang I don't think we just played it yeah, <laughs> um, yeah you know it was fun it was fun I, I'd always um, found music to be um, an outlet, you know, um, had posters all over my wall of, you know, Madonna and Prince and Cindy Lauper, as we all did back then, and mm. um, used to crank the music really loud. I swear to God, even I remember one of my uncles one time, he came bursting into my room and said, if I hear you play that freaking Papa Don't Preach one more time, I'm going to take that record and smash it. <laughs> 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 so yeah i loved my music if i didn't have my music i don't know where i would have ended up it was just mm. such a you know music's a great transporter it takes you away from your problems um takes you into another space mm. yes well talking of that we've got a song uh queued up uh this one's help help is on its way by glenn shorrick <laughs>
Also known as Robbie Thorpe, I want to invite you to the 2022 Beyond the Bars CD launch on Thursday, the 10th of November, at Arnie Elmer Thorpe's gathering place, Dadi Munwaro, 546 to 550 High Street, Preston. There will be a panel discussion on First Nations incarceration and justice, some live music with Amos Roach, and free copies of this year's Beyond the Bars CD. Thursday, the 10th of November. Arnie Almathorpe's gathering place, Daddy Munro, 6 to 8 pm. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au backslash beyond the bars. Panorama, Panpipe, Pansy, Aha, Pansexual, Knowing No Boundaries of Sex or Gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope 
only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you'd like to listen to one of our many podcasts, uh, you can find us on your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free and check out our website. You can also contact us via phone, email or Twitter. Uh, today I'm talking with Rachel and we're talking about alcoholism and her recovery through Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so Rachel, a bit more of your, I guess, life journey um, so what happened once you left school? What was mm. life like? Okay. Um, yeah, it was it was interesting because um, when I left school, I actually left at the end of year 11. Um, I wanted to be in – well, I had actually been working in a band even in my last year at school, so from when I was 15. And um, I wanted to sort of pursue that further and um, so, yeah, I left at year 11 and I remember just like, you know, getting out there and getting out into the world and going, yeah, free. And now what? Oh, nothing. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, all this build up for nothing. So um, anyway, I really put all my... Um, efforts into uh, the band, trying to get work for the band. Um, we had like a, a trio, which was sometimes a four-piece, and we just did covers. Um, and uh, I did a little study on the side, actually. I did. Uh, I still loved my study, always did. Uh, did a bit of short story course and uh, finished a couple of Year 12 subjects. But um, ultimately my focus was on the band yeah. and um, getting... Uh, work, you know, because um, by this stage, uh, by like 17, uh, I think I was paying rent and um, paying my share of things, so needed to earn the money. So I had a few part-time jobs um, and, uh, yeah, managed to get we, – we got we, – we started getting some regular work and I loved that because, you know um, – that I, that not only meant that I could, you know, do the music that I love to do and, and like to perform, but, um, you know, I guess I was starting to get a really good regular taste for alcohol because it was all around me, you know. Yeah. Um, and as a 15-year-old in a pub who, you know, was working there, like, nobody knew. I wasn't going to tell them. No. <laughs> um, you know, and they'd come up and say, oh, you know, they'd give you a drink rider. So I'd just say, oh, you know, can I have a bourbon and coke? Thank you. Very much. Um, so, yeah, and also like to warm up vocally. Um, you know, I was shown uh, that if you had a glass of port, that would actually warm up your vocal cords really nicely. So, I, you know, I went from just having a glass to carrying my own bottle of port in my gig bag. So I had plenty of warm-ups. Didn't have to do the <laughs> me, 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 mama, mama, mama's at all. It's just a swig and you're right. <laughs> That's that's really really funny. You should try. You should not try that, Bill. No, I've got I've got somebody in mind who might like to try it though. (laughs) Uh, Your dulcet tones are quite fine with a cup of tea, I think. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) So, 
did your drinking at that point change? Yeah, it's it's a good point. <clears throat> I think so. Um, I think, uh, look, I really liked drinking. Um, I couldn't afford to drink all the time. And I think being young, I could probably tolerate it a little bit better, um, get it out of my system a bit quicker. Um, I was more focused on earning money and, and drinking hadn't really become the, f- the full-time focus of my life at that point. Mm. Um, it was just, you know, trying to keep a buck and, you know, keep a roof over, over our heads and whatever else. Um, but definitely, like, I know by the time... By the time I was driving, I'll never forget one time I had to drive myself home after a gig, which was pretty close to home, and I remember being really smashed and getting in my little car and, like, doing a complete fishtail on Dandenong Road, and, uh, yeah, I don't know how I made it home. That is a scary memory. Mm. Very blurry vision, and thank God there were no other cars on the road. That you could see. <laughs> that, look, there may well have been, but I could not see them. So, yeah, I guess you could say my interest in alcohol was increasing and my intake was increasing um, because, yeah, you know what, to get up on a stage is a scary thing for a, a young teenager mm. who had zero confidence, zero experience. In fact, one of the band members, you know, didn't think I could sing anyway and, you know, think they thought I shouldn't be in the band and because um, sometimes I couldn't hit the notes and um, nothing worse than a singer that can't hit the notes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up having I, – I actually had massive tonsils and I had to have them removed and once they were removed – like they were like a couple of bags of watermelons. It was amazing. Like my voice changed and I mm. could hit the notes after that. Yeah. So, right. yeah, you can go to buggery. <laughs> <laughs> so what about relationships then? How did alcohol affect your relationships at that time? Do you remember? <laughs> Don't remember much of the last 10 years. But before that, uh, no, look – I mean, look, honestly, back then, I don't think it affected my relationships as badly. Mm. Um, If anything, I used it as a confidence booster. Um, I mean, I was doing a lot of cold calling, ringing up hotels, speaking to managers, trying to sell them my band. And, you know, I was scared. They didn't know I was like 17, 18. You know, some of these agents I used to speak to were like monsters. They were so nasty. They probably thought I was a lot older. I was just this naive young kid, you know. And um, so, yeah, you know, if I could sneak a little bit of port or whatever to try to get my Dutch courage up, then I would. Mm. But uh, more often than not, I don't think I was really drinking at home at that time. That started a lot later um, when I started a family of my own and started to do – it's funny, actually. I I think my drinking actually accelerated when I got away from the music scene. Like, it, it probably the, probably seeded in there, but um, and I'm not saying that, you know, I didn't drink a lot. I wasn't totally annihilated every time I was on stage, but I definitely don't remember a lot of times that I was sober on stage either. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned starting a family. So what's it like to live with somebody and you have a drinking problem? Or didn't you have a drink? Wasn't it a problem at that point? Um, In a close relationship, I'm sort of talking about. Yeah. yeah. 
I think um, when when I first, you know, got married and, um, you know, look, I was definitely enjoying my liquor, definitely. Um, but it was accepted again, you know, when you're young and you're partying and, and things are not that serious, you know, like it's just something that's done. Um, and I didn't have a lot of non-drinkers around me. Um, I still had strong ties with my family who were, you know, very much pro-drinkers. Um, I guess that still combined with being in the music scene, um, you know, it just normalized alcohol for me and I never, ever questioned it. Um, it was after I had my first daughter, um, that I had, uh, I suffered postnatal depression and, um, yeah, things got a bit dark there for a while. Um, and I think if I move it along to when I had my second daughter, that's when I remember the drinking really accelerating. Like she was a beautiful baby and everything was, was good, you know, but um, as she got older, you know, I found the, the, the struggles of dealing with, you know, a toddler, uh, a very willful toddler, um, more than I could perhaps deal with. And um, I found myself like drinking a lot of red wine at night, you know, like literally locking the door. She wouldn't go to bed. She, you know, was a difficult sleeper and I would just be at my wits end. And so instead of trying to deal with the problem or, you know, console my, my child that couldn't go to sleep, I would just you know, inebriate myself with, um, with red wine, sometimes two bottles a night. And, um, it wasn't really dealing with anything. Mm. Was your partner concerned? Did they pick it up? Not at that point. Um, I think he was just trying to keep me happy because, um, you know, I was a bit of a spitfire. If I got, if I got my danders up, you'd know about it. <laughs> so I think he probably preferred to uh, just just keep a keep the supply coming, so to speak, because it um, avoided conflict for him. Yeah. So when did you think drinking was a problem and you might need to do something about it? Mm. So um, we had a death in the family. Um, around 2012, I think it was. And, um, yeah, it was a really significant, uh, you know, family death. And um, I've skipped a big part there, but that's okay. We'll go with that. Um, And I thought I'd do some fundraising for um, this family member as they had passed away of cancer. And um, I did... Uh, fundraiser called Dry July and uh, I thought you know what I've never done this before and actually it came to me while I was doing yoga right okay this sounds really really spooky but um, I was in a yoga class and um, there was always like a 15 or 10 minute relaxation part at the end and um, I remember a few times I'd be in this relaxation and it would come to me like, you should do dry July. <laughs> You're like, I don't want to do dry July. Get out of my head. Like, how dare you <laughs> infiltrate my mind? And um, it really took a hold and I thought, okay, well, 
should I listen to this voice? You know, maybe I should look into it. Damn it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. So, you know, I listened to that little spooky voice. And um, I did do Dry July and um, and I raised some money for cancer patients. And I didn't realize how hard it was to stop drinking for 31 days as I'd never tried. I mean, never at all since that time that I found Nana's sherry in the cupboard. Literally, I'd just always had it if ever I could. And um, to try to stop because at that point... I was pretty much drinking on a daily basis. Um, I couldn't believe how hard it was to stop. Um, the first couple of weeks, I really white knuckled my way through that. Um, and I am, you know, my family will attest to the to the fact that I was a fire breathing dragon. There was definitely no safe space. If you were around me, just get out of my way. Do not do not ask for anything. Do not ask for a favor. Do, do not ask for anything. In fact, just just leave. Leave. Go away. And um, by the third week, I started to calm down a little bit and my mind started to just stop racing a little bit. And I thought, I'm sleeping better. I feel a bit better. My energy's up. Not breathing as much fire today. Maybe there's something in this sobriety stuff. And by the fourth week, I'm like, hmm, yeah, there's definitely a new buzz that I'm feeling here, and it's all because I'm not drinking. Okay, doesn't matter. First of August, bottoms up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, let's just keep it going. Midnight, ready with the bottle, <laughs> ready, ready. So, um, no, couldn't wait to get that first drink back into me. And frankly, if I hadn't had people like sponsoring me and giving mm. me donations, there's no yeah. way, mm. no way I would have kept sober for that month. So, um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, that was when I realized, because up until that point, I guess I'd always said, I can stop anytime I want to. That was all my always my catch cry, you know. Oh, you know, you're a heavy drinker, rage, you know. Ah, it doesn't matter. I can stop anytime I want to. Well, guess what? I wanted to, and it was hard, mm. real hard. <laughs> I'm only human, damn it. <laughs> so, what what brought you to the point of seeking help then? Okay. So, fast forward to 2016, the year. That was a shocker. What a Barry Crocker of a year that was. Not going to go into specifics because it's a a gut-wrenching year and I had a lot of uh, bad juju go down. But um, in a nutshell, uh, there was another family death and I... it, it, the, the the events resulted in my entire family no longer talking to me. Um, and that's probably the easiest way to put it. Yep. I still don't talk to them. And I would say, you know, at this point too, drugs were a part of my story. I was uh, taking uh, amphetamines to help me drink more. I liked the effect of being able to drink more and being able to be awake for longer 
wasn't actually able to black out. You know, who knew that was a thing? I didn't. Um, but I discovered that and I really, really liked it. I thought I'd found the answer to living. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that was I wrong. <laughs> yeah, damn wrong. So um, basically I, uh, I, I reckon I had like a nervous breakdown. I was in like bed for six weeks, um, didn't want to go out, wouldn't see anybody, extremely depressed, um, which is probably a normal reaction to your whole family turning on you. And, yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, but I think I needed it. I needed to have that rock bottom. Everybody, you know, has one. And I think that was mine. Um, realizing that I wasn't bulletproof, that I actually, uh, that people, you know, life wasn't perfect. I wasn't perfect. I wasn't the person I thought I was. I thought that my family would always be there for me, that they'd always love me. But, um, and it's not maybe that they didn't love me, but you know what? Whatever happened, happened for a reason, and it made me look at myself. Mm. And um, it made me go, what in the hell is going on? Who am I? Who am I? What have I done? Um, what have I done to alienate all these people? Have I done something wrong? Was it me? Is it them? Is it both? You know, there's still questions that I'm going to work through when I do the steps. Mm. And, um, you know, I think I'll find that a good part of it's me. Um, so, well, I can't remember your question anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Listen, we might take another break. <laughs> An appropriate song, I guess. Uh, this one's Man Overboard by Do Re Mi. Cool. Feeling, feeling, 
Lead up to the state election, join the Homes Not Prisons campaign for street theatre, speeches from people with a lived experience of criminalisation and a rally demanding investment in Aboriginal community-controlled public housing for criminalised women and their families. 4pm on Friday the 21st of October at Parliament Steps in Nam, Melbourne. Keep the pressure on. Fund communities, not prisons and police. Friday 21st of October, 4pm Parliament Steps. Homes, not prisons, is a 3CR supporter. Salam be Hamegi. This is Jahan Khonlu from Salam Radio. Tune in 4 to 6 p.m. every Sunday on 3CR for a wide selection of modern music from the greater Middle East and beyond. We feature guests both locally and internationally based to help bring new sounds to you. For more information, please follow our Instagram at Salam Radio Show. So tune on in. You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. Welcome back. Uh, This is the Living Free Show on 3CR on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au. And I'm talking with Rachel and we're talking about alcoholism and her recovery through Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so, Rachel, before the break, we were talking about you having a nervous breakdown and realising that you weren't bulletproof. <laughs> so, how did that work out? Well, I guess, you know, um, a few years went by and um, things at home were not good and I was uh, – my drinking had accelerated to, you know um, – a record point I was you know basically um, drinking a bottle of wild turkey uh, well yeah every two days um, and uh, red wine as well sometimes Smirnoff double blacks if the weather was hot you know like there was 
I spent a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of time and money drinking and um, probably numbing myself from what I just experienced um, to the point where come May 2018, I woke up and I just went, I think I got a problem. I think I've got a drinking problem. I don't I wish I could I wish I could stop drinking. And um I I tried. I tried to stop drinking. I actually, you know what I did do? Um I was up late one night and uh Russell Brand, there was a video of Russell Brand um that came up on social media and he was promoting his book at the time um uh what the hell was it called? <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't matter. Recovery. (laughs) It's called recovery, Rachel. All right. So recovery. And um, I thought, I'm going to get that book. I went out the next day and I bought that book. Mm. Um, And I got into it and I love his language, very plain and easy to understand and um, comedic in any way. In, I started to get into it and he was talking about how he could he could do it, but he couldn't do it alone, that he he went into a meeting, a recovery meeting, and like the people had a glow about them and, you know, their teeth were sparkling and their hair was shimmering in the wind and all this stuff. And yeah. he's like, I want some of what these people have. And I'm like, yeah, I want it too. If it's good enough for Russ... It's good enough for rage. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you find the solution? Well, after reading what I read in Russell's book, I, you know, bumbled along into a meeting, rang up the line, spoke to someone helpful, and uh, I went to my first meeting, and there was such a different, like, array of cross-section of, of different people from all walks of life and um, about, I don't know, maybe 18, 20 people and um, I thought, oh, my God, what have I gotten into here? <laughs> oh, I don't know about this. Anyway, I sat down, sat in the corner and um, lo and behold, I identified with every single person that shared their story and I was floored. I thought, oh, hell, I think I'm home. I actually had those thoughts, uh, that those words in my head. I thought, I feel like I'm home. And um, I really resonated with at least one thing that every member shared. And I thought, wow, you know, but at no time did I feel like I was an alcoholic. I just knew that I knew I liked what I heard and I, I could understand what these people were saying to me. Mm. 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 So what did that make you do? Well, I said keep coming back. So I went back. I went back. I went back the next week. I went back the next week after that. And then um, I started to listen to what people had to say um, and doing the things that I heard. You know, I think three weeks in I had a school reunion. And I said, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And not drink, but I don't want to drink, you know. And um, one of one of our home group members, the lovely Alicia, she actually said to me, she said, you know what? She said, if you're going to go, go. Go to your reunion. But leave 
if it starts to feel gratuitous. I've never forgotten those words and they've held me in good stead at times uh, when I need to leave because I'm a shocking leaver. I could never leave. I was always the last to leave anything. The last, you know, I get thrown out. I still get thrown out of meetings. <laughs> I'm the last to leave a meeting. So um, I've used that and, and uh, I went to the reunion and I watched – you know, the, the lovely girls that I caught up with. But, you know, they, they started to not look so lovely after a couple of hours and um, they started to gracefully decline. And I thought, you know what, this is feeling gratuitous and I'm going to leave. And I I went, okay, guys, see you later. And they didn't care. <laughs> you know, that's Strangely the other enough. thing. Here am I thinking, you know, you're so self-obsessed and you're so self-absorbed. You think everything is around, revolves around you. Guess what? It don't. No. So um, it was easy to leave. And I've, yeah, kept that, that advice in good stead. Um, so uh, cutting forward now, um, I've been kicking around in the rooms for four and a half years. Um, I have relapsed in that time. Um, you know, it was difficult moving house twice in 12 months during COVID. <laughs> that was a challenge. Um, and look, I'm sure that people have remained sober in far more strenuous situations, but for me, it was a little bit more than I could handle. And uh, at the end of the day, guess what? I didn't think I was an alcoholic. Um, I wrestled with that first step that we have in the 12 steps. Um, and I kept trying to prove to myself over and over that I could drink. And I relapsed 37 times, according to my sobriety app, because being the perfectionist that I am, um, I... I do like to reset my app. (laughs) (laughs) So those 37 relapses and attempts at controlling my drinking unsuccessfully have helped me to understand that this is a cycle that I will not be able to escape on my own. Like Russell said in his book, you know, you can do it, but you can't do it alone because my best thinking gets me at the end of the day to pick up another drink. But... When, I, when I'm in um, a fellowship of like-minded individuals who have a common theme that, you know, like the, uh, I think it's a third tradition states that the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. That's it. I'm a member. Mm. And guess what? I desire to stop drinking. So here I am and, you know, I, I do keep coming back. Um, you know, I'm never going to learn at all, but um, by Jingo's, you know, I'm eight months, I turned eight months sober yesterday and I feel like I've really, I feel like I've just, I've got it this time. You know, I don't, I don't get in the wrestling rink. I don't have the cravings to drink anymore like I did. Um, I don't feel like I have a need to prove that I'm an alcoholic anymore. I feel like I've accepted that um, I am. I just unfortunately have an allergy to alcohol. You know, um, I have this reaction that when I take one drink, it's that one drink that makes me want to have another and another and another. Even if I can control it, I could probably get a bottle of bourbon, take one drink and say, look at me. See, I had one drink. I showed you, didn't I? But But check me out tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) I'll wrestle you for the rest of that bottle. Okay. Um, if anybody would like to find out more about Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, you can call them on 1300 or go online at aa.org.au for more information on recovery from alcoholism. 
Uh, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Rachel for sharing her drinking recovery story with us and talking about how Alcoholics Anonymous has helped her. Thank you, Rachel. That is my pleasure. And a quick shout out to my homies, uh, Chris, Greg, Di, Dan, and uh, Steve. I have to say shout out to Steve. Thank you for being my community and uh, helping me stay sober one day at a time. Thank you. Uh, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when my co-host Anne will be talking with Mike. Um, and they'll be talking about dealing with alcoholism in a relative or friend with the help of Al-Anon family groups. Coming up next, we have Balanoir, The Spirit of War, hosted by Uncle Telgium Choco Edwards. Uh, join Uncle Choco in the spirit of War on a journey of belonging and movement through sing-alongs and yarns. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.